Hello, friends, and welcome. This is the second episode in a series called Hopeful Eschatology. In this episode, we're going to jump into Matthew 25 as we lay the foundation to get ready for the book of Revelation. We looked at Matthew 24, and now we're going to look very briefly at Matthew 25. And the interesting thing about Matthew 25 is that it's not paralleled in Mark or Luke. And so it's it's kind of this, uh, a lot of unique content in Matthew 25. And what's interesting, the other interesting thing to note about Matthew is there are other places in the Gospel of Matthew where he's kind of aggregating the teachings of Jesus. So it's not necessarily a chronological order, uh, whereas Luke, you know, he, when Luke starts his Gospel, let me go there real quick, he says, it seemed good to me, having followed all things closely for some times past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke sets out to write this orderly account, whereas Matthew is not necessarily in chronological order in terms of things happening in succession, but there are places where we can see he aggregated the teachings of Jesus. One example of this would be in Matthew chapter 10. So at the beginning of Matthew chapter 10, we see Jesus calls his 12 disciples to them and gives them authority and sends them out. And he gives them instructions on what to do. He says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. So uh, he's giving his disciples instructions for going out and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and ministering. He's telling them only go to the Jews, don't go to the Gentiles. And he's giving them these instructions. But then, beginning in verse 16, he starts with this kind of other set of instructions. And it says, um, they're going to deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. They're going to drag you before governors and kings. You're going to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Uh, don't be anxious. He goes on through this. He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So if we look at these two set of instructions, they appear to be for two different occasions. So the first one would be while Jesus is still on the earth, and the second one would appear to be after Jesus has left the earth and ascended to the Father. Because if Jesus were still on the earth, it wouldn't make sense for him to tell them, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And like we learned from Matthew 24, when we're using this language of the Son of Man coming, or coming in the clouds. It's this language of judgment. So this can help us understand this scripture on a couple of levels. First of all, we can realize that he was talking about AD 70, which makes much more sense for him to say, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes in judgment on AD 70, versus if we try to apply that to his final coming, surely in the last 2,000 years, they would have been able to go through all the towns of Israel already. So if all that's required to have Jesus come back a second time is to go through all the towns of Israel, you know, 
the church should be able to accomplish that pretty easily. But he was talking about his coming in judgment, so that helps us understand that in that context. But it is also helpful for us to understand that Matthew is aggregating various teachings of Jesus. And so we have two, it would appear, I mean, I don't want to be too dogmatic about this, but it would appear we have two sets of instructions here. The first one is when Jesus is on the earth and they go out, and the second one would be after Christ is not going to be on the earth. And, you know, there's some other evidence for that in the text itself where he says that you will testify before Gentiles, but in the first set of instructions, he's told them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no towns of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of Israel. So how would they be brought before the Gentiles? And uh, he's telling them that they're going to be uh, flogged in synagogues and you know, taken in before governors and kings. And we know that that didn't happen to the disciples while Jesus was still with them. That happened later after Jesus had ascended to the Father. And so we get you know, we, we kind of get these collections of Jesus's sayings, which makes sense when you think about Matthew as a very Jewish gospel. It's for a Jewish audience, and he was collecting the sayings of the Messiah, the sayings of this honored rabbi, and he was aggregating the sayings of Jesus, not necessarily trying to put them in a chronological or kind of logical time order. And we see the same things in each of the collections of Matthew. So Matthew is a fascinating book. It's divided up into five collections of Jesus's sayings, which is a reflection of the first five books of Moses. And so it's this reflection of the new coming in and replacing the old. It's a new covenant. It's a new five collections of sayings versus the five books of Moses. There's so much in Matthew and even the way that it's structured and set up. And honestly, I'm not well-versed enough to do it justice. So I'm just going to do a Hebrews 9.5 and say, of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. So I'm I'm not going to go down there. But just to say that throughout Matthew, we see him collecting these sayings that that may or may not have been chronologically together. Another example of this might be the first collections of sayings. And and these five, it's really interesting, these five collections of sayings are, they start with a phrase similar to, like, Jesus opened up his mouth and taught them saying. So each, there's a phrase like that at the beginning of each. And at the close of each of the five sayings, it says, after Jesus had told them these things, and then it goes on with the narrative. But at the end of Matthew 25, he says, after Jesus had said to them all these sayings, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, so it's the end of the fifth collection of sayings. So that's just kind of interesting. But another example of just a collections of sayings would be, we, we start with the Sermon on the Mount with this first collection of the five sayings, and we get just amazing teachings of Jesus. And it would seem that rather than this being all one sermon per se, that it's a collection of the teachings of Jesus. So for example, in Matthew 7, 1, he's talking about don't judge so that you won't be judged. Uh, you know, Don't look at the speck in someone else's eye when there's a log in your own eye. And then it, in verse 6, it says, do not give to dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs 
lest they trample them underfoot and turn attack you. And then in verse 7, he says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be open to you. So verse 5, 6, and 7 don't seem to have a lot of connection with one another other than that they're the sayings of the Messiah, they're the sayings of this rabbi that Matthew has collected. But there's not necessarily a real flow from, uh, you know, take the log out of your own eye and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give to dogs what is holy, ask and it will be given to you. Again, I think it's helpful to understand that Matthew has aggregated a collection of the sayings of Jesus, and that's what we see in these five collections of sayings. And again, if you look at the end of Matthew chapter 7, he says, and when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. So he's aggregated these sayings, and he's recording the people's reaction to his teaching, and then the narrative goes on. And so then at the end, in this last large collection of Jesus's sayings. It's number five of these five collections of Jesus's sayings. Matthew is laying out the climax of Jesus's teachings that the new covenant is going to come and replace the old. And then we see the physical acting out of that as Jesus goes to the cross, dies, and is resurrected, and then sends out his disciples to make disciples of all nations. And so my point is simply to say that the, the teachings of Matthew are aggregated into these five collections of the sayings of Jesus, and they're not necessarily intended to reflect a chronological order that they were given in, which might be why we don't see Matthew 25 paralleled in any of the other Gospels. So as we get into Matthew 25, we're coming out of Matthew 24, where he's just said that no one knows the day or the hour. You want to be a faithful and wise servant. You want to be stewarding the master's house properly when the master comes, because then there will be a reward. And then he goes into this parable of the ten virgins and talking about five were foolish and five were wise. Five had extra oil, five didn't. And I used to kind of be into, oh, what's the oil represent? Is it the Holy Spirit? I know that's what Watchman Nee thinks and, you know, being filled with the Spirit and that keeps us alert. And I don't have any problem with that application, but I think the main thing of that is five were foolish and five were wise. So the exhortation is to be wise. The exhortation is not to be foolish. And of course, in other places, the Bible instructs us to keep in step with the Holy Spirit. Since we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with the Spirit. So we don't want to get so bogged down in the details of a parable that we miss the main point of what he's saying. He's saying, be wise. Ultimately, the problem of the foolish virgins was that the bridegroom did not know them. So he didn't know them, didn't let them in. And that reminds me of Ephesians chapter 4, where he says, Don't walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their mind. They are darkened in their understanding. And we're going to see this theme uh, come out again as we get into the sheep and the goats, where your deeds are such an accurate reflection of what you believe that they are what God is able to use to distinguish Christians from non-Christians. The most accurate expression of what you believe is what you do. And so being wise, being a good steward, caring for the sick and the poor and the people in prison, those things, those deeds don't save you, but they reflect the relationship you have with Christ so accurately that he's able to use those to distinguish which people are his and which people are not his. Now, you could have someone doing good deeds 
who doesn't know Christ. We see that in Matthew chapter 7, where people come to him and say, Lord, in your name we cast out demons, we prophesied, we did miracles. And he says, away from me, you workers of lawlessness. So not only were they not his, he said that the things they were doing were, were sinful and lawless. So it's the relationship with God that matters. The same thing with the parable of the talents. It was because the servants knew who the master was that they were able to steward properly the talents that he entrusted them with. But the wicked servant who didn't know what the master was like, he says that, you know, you're a hard man reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seeds. And we talked about this parable in a previous podcast uh, from Luke, so I won't go into it in a lot of detail. But he didn't know who the master was. So him not knowing the master caused him to not be a good steward of what he had been entrusted with. So in Matthew 25, we get these parables about being wise, about being ready, being a good steward. And then we get what I believe is the transition verse where Jesus is explaining now about his parousia, the Greek word that means his physical final coming to earth. And that's in Matthew 25, 31. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And there's no way to take the weight out of those words, and I would never want to, and nobody should ever try, because it should cause all of us to examine our lives. It should cause all of us to see if our priorities are lining up with God's priorities. It should cause all of us to think, is my life really being ordered by the Spirit of God, and am I really about the things that God is about, or am I still running my own life? Do I really belong to Christ, or am I still my own king? Am I still my own master? And like I said before, the most accurate expression of what you believe is what you do. 
So the scripture says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, you shall be saved. So you can confess something with your mouth, but not believe it in your heart. But when you believe something in your heart, your behavior will automatically demonstrate that belief. It's like if I'm sitting in a building and someone comes in and says, hey, this building's on fire. It's going to burn to the ground. You need to leave. And I go, yeah, yeah, okay, thanks. And they say, what, what are you doing? Why are you still sitting here? Don't you believe me? And I say, yeah, yeah, I believe you. It's okay. Go ahead. And I just stay sitting there. Well, clearly I can tell that person, yeah, 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 I believe you. Okay, whatever. And I can say to them, I believe what you're saying. But if I really believe that the building was burning down and I was going to die, unless I have some kind of mental condition, I would get up and get out of that building. That would be the demonstration of, I believe what you're saying, and now my behavior reflects it. And so these are heavy, weighty verses, and they're intended to be, and they should cause us all to test ourselves and to see if we're really in Christ. Is Jesus really the center of our lives or are we just using him as an accessory or as just kind of a decoration in our lives, but he's not really our king? And I believe this is also a distinction from what he's talking about in Matthew chapter 24, where he's talking about the destruction of the temple. He's answering his disciples' specific question and his second coming, his parousia, the final coming of Christ where he physically appears and he judges all the nations. And we're going to get into the details of this when we look into Revelation. But notice in verse 41, he says, Depart from me, you cursed, into the fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. You know, it was never God's intention for human beings to go into the lake of fire. God's intention has always been for humanity to spend eternity with him and to be in fellowship with him. But as we've talked about in our other podcasts, God honors us and he honors us and he loves us to the point of respecting our decisions, even if it means we refuse him. He will love us and he will honor us to the point of allowing us to choose to go into eternal fire because he's not going to force us to make him our king. He wants people to love him, and love does not insist on its own way. So this is pretty heavy stuff, but I think it's that distinction for me that um, in verse 31 where he says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne, and before him will be gathered all the nations. And so I think Jesus offers in Matthew 24 specific instructions to the people living in first century Jerusalem telling them about the abomination of desolation, telling them to get out of Jerusalem, giving them instructions that will save their lives. And he says to them, just like the fig tree, as soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out leaves, you know that summer is near. He says, when you see these things, talking about the things he's talking about in Matthew 24, know that the end is near. And again, it's my opinion that he's not talking about the end of the world, but he's answering the question that the disciples asked him, the end of this temple, the end of the old covenant age. And then he goes on and he tells parables that apply both to that generation as well as to every generation of believers, that every generation of believers should be faithful in the house of God. We should be the wise and faithful servant. We should be 
uh, alert. We should be watchful. We should be the wise bridesmaids that have extra oil. We should be filled with the Holy Spirit, walking with the Holy Spirit. We should be seeking to steward well the talents that the Master has entrusted us with. And he offers us some very concrete, tangible examples of what it looks like to serve people in the kingdom of God, to give food to the hungry, drink to the thirsty, welcome the stranger, clothe the naked, visit the sick, go to those who are in prison. And we shouldn't try and take the weight and the conviction out of those verses because they're there for our good. They're there to test us. They're there to reveal to us whether or not Christ is our king or if we're just you know, living a religious life and we don't really know Christ and we're not really centering our lives around him. And that is Jesus talking about this eternal judgment at the end of time. And we'll see this with greater clarity when we get into Revelation. All right, I'll talk to you soon. God bless you. Thank you for listening. Thank you.